Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and welcome to Master Leadership Through Crisis series, where we will connect with leaders worldwide to gain insights on important questions to help us navigate through rough waters. If you would like to participate as a guest, or if you have a question that you would like to ask a guest, go to masterleadership.org for more information. As a crisis manager and operational turnaround expert, Dominic Aversa has spent his entire professional career working in chaotic and desperate situations. Often, he is the person companies call when all else has failed. Through all of these diverse environments, his message on leading has been the same. Be humble, have reverence for your surroundings, and embrace creativity and perseverance. As an entrepreneur and operational turnaround expert, Dominic is sought after by both global business leaders and government agencies. He has actively assisted companies in dramatic transitions for more than 25 years. Dominic has served as an educational speaker and managerial advisor on international business development, recession preparation, and insolvency issues for many businesses and academic institutions. Audiences have included the Harvard Business School and the Sloan School of Management at MIT. Welcome, Dominic Aversa. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Are you ready to pour into our listeners? Yes, I am. All right. So tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now. My path to leadership, I've been told it's atypical. Mm-hmm. I started life as a child care worker, an undergraduate degree in sociology and a graduate degree in law. While I was in law school, I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer, and I was looking for something else to do, and believe it or not, it was 1991, and I ended up going to a school program in the Soviet Union, and it was the first of its kind open to the Western world, and it was fortuitous, it was serendipitous, whatever you want to describe it, but that changed my path considerably. I ended up finishing law school, but starting a business while I was in law school in the Soviet Union. And that first business was importing and exporting food and alcohol products. That one business grew into several businesses over the next couple years, real estate development, finance. I owned a professional soccer team in Canada for a while a myriad of things. It basically ballooned into much more than I ever could imagine. I did very well, and I was fortunate to live through coup attempts in a very violent environment in the Soviet Union. But after a few years, I decided it was enough. The nature of the environment was too much for me uh, in terms of violence and corruption. And I thought, I want to start over back in America. And When I started my first business, I really knew nothing about business. I had never taken an accounting course in my life. 
never taken a finance course in my life. So you're one of these doers. You just think of an idea and you do. Okay. The only thing I knew about the Soviet Union at the time was Top Gun and Rocky IV. Watching those movies in the 80s, I knew nothing of the culture, nothing of the language. I just went. Mm-hmm. And I did well. I just studied and learned. But four or five years later, I decided I really wanted to learn about business and not just go through on moxie and doing and hustling my way through it. I wanted to actually learn specifics and technical things. So I found someone in the United States who we struck a deal. I promised to help grow his business, and he promised to help teach me technical aspects of business. What was the business he was in? turnaround work, restructuring work. I had never heard of this type of work. What is crisis management? What is turnaround? I didn't know. And he explained it to me and I said, oh, I was used to having guns and tanks and a lot of violence around me. And I said, so the biggest problem that I would be facing is you can't make payroll. I said, I could handle it. Mm -hmm. And there I began in the turnaround world and I loved it because I was helping people. The situations are chaotic and desperate. People are looking for answers. They're looking for guidance. Everyone's fighting, kind of like we're in today. Mm -hmm. Everyone's looking for guidance and answers you don't know. There's always this ambiguity. And for some reason, I gravitated towards this environment because of the human dynamic. And since then, I've been CEO or chief restructuring officer or chief operating officer of six different companies. I've managed more than 6,000 people. I've overseen and restructured several billion dollars worth of debt within companies. I've overseen several billion dollars worth of revenue in companies. I've worked in over 60 different countries, 43 different states, 45 different industries. And so this all came by just taking that first chance. That's an amazing journey. And I wrote down risk taker (laughs) as you were talking, um, because you certainly are a risk taker. In addition to helping people in crisis management situations or even on the verge of failure, that's the space in which you thrive. I assume that your energy or adrenaline gets going in situations like that. It's actually the opposite. Tell me. (laughs) That's the key, Lily. Uh The key is I, for some reason, uh, when all is going bad, I actually become calmer. So when there is chaos around me, I'm perfectly at home. And what I learned over the years, I had to hire a lot of people to work with me in my business. As you can imagine, it's challenging. For an ordinary person, even the most seasoned business people, male or female, once they get dropped into my world, they fall apart. So I would spend years trying to hire people. I'd hire, you know, Ivy League educated people, people who came from Fortune 50 companies, et cetera, who I thought had on paper the ability to work through, you know, restructuring companies and saving companies. And it didn't work. So I turned to psychologists. What I did is I put myself through psychological testing to try to figure out what is it that makes me good at this work. And what I discovered was this high tolerance for stress. And then I started interviewing and having 
people take these different psychological tests and we were looking for these markers. Of course, you needed the technical skills, but you also needed that ability to stay calm and you needed the ability to convey that calmness because when a ship is sinking, everyone's looking for that stability. And if you fall apart or if you think that you can do it on adrenaline, if you think you can yell at people, let me give you just context. Let's say 80% of my clients, the engagement begins like this. They'll call me on a Monday and they'll say, Dominic, I was given your name by a bank or someone, a lawyer, an investment banker, and I can't make payroll this Thursday. Can you help me? That's how broke they are. They may have 400 employees. They may have 4,000 employees. Right. Now, in today's world with the crisis that we're facing with COVID, this seems a little bit normal now. But if we try to remember, you know, in a good economy, these things happen as well. Or the last recession, companies were falling out of the sky. So these are dire situations. I have a day or two to find money for them. Mm. You can't panic in that situation. So by the time they call me, they've generally been under financial pressure from at least a year, sometimes many years. So the employees are demoralized. The owners are demoralized. They're frustrated. Generally, the better talent has left. Customers are frustrated. Suppliers are frustrated. Creditors are frustrated. And there's power struggles. The last thing you want to do is come go into a situation like that and pour gasoline on it. You can't yell at people. You can yell at a couple, maybe the senior leaders you want to get out of the way so you can make change. But my particular style is to empathize, listen, to try mm -hmm. to talk with people and find out where their pain is, where the mm -hmm. pain is in the company, and then lead from there. Right. I've interviewed one other person that said the same thing it's almost like a superpower <laughs> she can see all the things that can go wrong but it doesn't make her anxious right it settles her so i'm so fascinated by this because it's exactly what we need when we're in crisis so speaking of crisis right now we're experiencing the covid 19 global pandemic hopefully on the tail end we're not sure all right. Yes. And that's another thing that we're encountering. There are people that are saying, I'm done with this. But yeah, but right. this thing isn't done with us. Right. So I imagine that there's been an uptick in your organization. Oh, yes. But the challenge is that people don't have money to pay. Mm -hmm. They actually don't have money to pay, nor their right. creditors. But I've transitioned my business. I used to work with larger companies. When I say larger, they were companies with revenues north of 50 million. And sometimes they would go to 700 million. In revenue. I generally didn't get into the multi-billion dollar companies because that's a whole different dynamic of managing. So I just enjoyed that middle space. What I've done now over the past year, I wrote my book, Corporate Undertaker, Business Lessons from the Dead and Dying, in a good economy, <laughs> trying to help small businesses because it's small businesses that get into trouble and don't know who to turn to or can't afford to pay that person. So I've been working with a lot of small companies and most of my work the past couple of months because of COVID, I've been doing pro bono. I've wow. been doing free. What my wife part? wants to know when I'm going to get paid, <laughs> but <laughs> I just couldn't do it. I will get paid. It won't last forever. And I think it was in May, I made a decision. I gave away my book for free, the ebook. It was interesting test. Within 10 days, 2,200 books were downloaded. Wow. So it just shows you the power. People are looking for answers. Right. It didn't feel right for me to 
start charging right now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your generosity. And I see an uptick in that as well with people that I'm speaking to where we connect with people and their pain points. And so we want to just offer some help and some guidance. Um, so where can we connect with you? It's very simple. Corporateundertaker.com. Okay. And you can go on to various social medias. Twitter, it's Inc. underscore Undertaker. At Corporate Undertaker for Instagram. Author, Dominic Aversa, D-O-M-E-N-I-C, last name Aversa, A-V-E-R-S-A, on Facebook. But the website is the best place, corporateundertaker.com. Many people are confused and intimidated by the title, Corporate Undertaker. Uh, (laughs) But the subtitle is Business Lessons from the Dead and Dying. The reality is I was never called a corporate undertaker. I was someone who went in to save companies. The word corporate undertaker just came from my imagination. Just one day, it was out of fatigue from the last recession because I raced from company to company to company trying to save jobs and communities. And there's a picture on the cover of the book of an angel weeping over a gravestone. And I chose that picture. My publisher looked at me and said, well, why do you want this? I said, that's how I feel when I can't save a company, Hmm. exasperated. And I know that there is tens of millions of small businesses, sewers, bakers, web people, people like you, podcasters, doctors, whomever it may be, there's roughly 30 million small businesses in America, small business being defined as under 500 employees. They represent half of the economy in the United States. And I know that they are challenged every day, even when things are going well. When the economy is going well, there's a whole different set of problems. And so that's what I wanted to address. I wrote a book that talks about all of the uncomfortable things other people don't want to talk about. The anguish, the loss, the frustration, the confusion, and how to get through it. So I broke the book into five different chapters that takes through the course of an entrepreneur's life. And each chapter is called Life, Adversity, Crisis, Death, and Rebirth. So I took people through the starting of a company, the struggles of learning a company, and then failing a company, or if a company fails, and then regrowing it. And what I do is I talked about my story. My story as an entrepreneur and how I started with no experience and rose to very high levels, including being invited to Harvard Business School to lecture, to MIT Sloan School of Management to lecture, and how companies fail and my perspective on it. The model for this book came from Dr. Oz, You, the Owner's Manual. I said, here's a cardiologist who spent years operating on people with poor health. And what he did is he put together a book that said, don't do this or you will die. That's what corporate undertaker is. Right. Business lessons from the dead and dying. So there's 50 lessons in here. The lessons came from my personal notes and my personal journal that I started writing to myself in the early 90s. I started my first company when I was 23 years old. Because I didn't know what I was doing, I would write myself notes. 
every time I made a mistake, I'd say, don't do this <laughs> again. And if I did something that worked out well, I'd write, do this again, right. to be simplistic. Well, I put together three books filled of just business notes of do's and don'ts from my own witness, from my own right, experience. Right. And that's what went into Corporate Undertaker. Right. There's a lot of value in what you're saying and how you put all that together. So thank you so much for that. Now, you meet with crisis all the time. What is a quote or some advice that has helped you most during crisis? My favorite quote that helps me, it's a thing that I'm holding in my hand that I've been holding from the beginning of the interview. Yes. It's laminated. Oh. I did this again in the early 90s when I was struggling to figure out so many different things and I made so many mistakes. I came across this quote and I'll read it to you. Yes. Uh, can I read the whole thing? Absolutely. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So I've carried this I with love me. That. Beautiful. Isn't it great? Yes. It's by Marianne Williamson, uh, 1992, I believe, when she said. And Nelson Mandela used this in one of his speeches, and many people actually attribute it to him, but it was Marianne Williamson who wrote these first words. Mm. And I think I caught, made this laminated copy in 1994 or 95, and I still carry a paper calendar. I have my electronic, but I'm still a little old fashioned. I keep paper calendars. They help me in my journal records. So I have 25 years of these things. Wow. I carry it with me all around the world every day. And when I am facing trouble, because at the end of the day, I am beat up like everyone else, but I have to get renewed in some way because I have to go to work and help other people. And often it's thousands of people. And it's not just the people in the company that I'm working with, it's their suppliers, it's their customers. And so it spreads to different communities. And now the world that we live in spreads to other countries. So I need to be the best I can be. And it is this that gives me the inspiration to be enlightened, to be kind, to be inspirational, to be motivating others. And these words just hit it every time. And that's so important for a leader to feed themselves so right. that they can feed others. You're a lifelong learner, clearly. What is it that you're learning right now? What I've been learning for the past year, social media. <laughs> social Love it, media. hate it. We still have to learn it, I, right? <laughs> I dug in my heels and said never. And I was wrong again. And I just realized, no, this is the way the world is going. You have mm -hmm. to evolve. So I had spent years studying 
industrial engineering. I've studied psychology. I spent time studying with courtroom litigators because they persuade juries. And I wasn't trying to persuade people or manipulate them. I just needed to learn how to be an effective communicator because when people are under stress and they're troubled, they're not listening and they have a million other problems. So I studied sales, marketing, finance, accounting. The only thing that was left was this technical revolution. The past five years, the world of social media, online marketing, online sales has changed so dramatically that it is beyond comprehension of almost everyone. Even the ones that are at the best don't know what's happening on the other side of the world in these technical arenas. And so for me to be an advisor to help other companies, I have to understand where this world is going. And the way I learn, I have to do it myself first. So I try to learn as much as I can so that way I can guide people. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you want to find, claim, develop, and expand your voice in order to land that job, those clients, or that partner, then Master Your Swag podcast is for you. You don't have to have expert credentials to be featured, and you can select from several plans that can perfectly match your needs. Go to MasterYourSwag.com and claim your spot as a guest and be ready to get noticed. That's MasterYourSwag.com. You know, I was reading your leadership statement and your journey is quite impressive, as I said before. But one of the things that just stood out for me was this. You said, through all of these diverse environments, your message on leading has been the same throughout. Be (laughs) humble, have reverence for your surroundings and embrace creativity and persevere. That's true leadership. And when you think of leadership today, Dominic, what most concerns you and what are you most hopeful about? That's a good question, Lily. What concerns me most about leadership today? I think too many companies are trying to be too many things to too many people. That might upset some people that are listening, but the customer wants what the customer wants. When they come to your place of business, whether it's a service or a product, they just want that one thing. They don't want everything else that comes to it. So leaders now are trying so hard to be accommodating to everyone that they're blending into each other and there's no identity. They all start to look the same in terms of messaging and feeling. Look, I'm a very encompassing person. That's the way I work. I try to incorporate. I'm very inclusive. I look to everyone else. But when you are a company trying to establish an identity in the marketplace, you need to be very clear or else you get lost. So if you're too involved in politics, I admire the political movements. If you're involved in social programs, that's wonderful too. But if you start putting politics, social programs, and other messaging out, the customers don't know, what, what am I buying from you? Mm-hmm. So some people, they will tell you there are brand managers and public relations people and advertising who will say it's about the brand, it's about the brand. It's principally about the product and the service. First, make your service excellent. 
first make your product excellent, then work on the other things. I very much endorse corporate responsibility. If you read through the book, you'll read through a lot of the stories. I didn't make a lot of friends. I've upset a lot of big corporations. I've upset a lot of big banks, law firms, investment banks, et cetera, that I worked for. So I'm not afraid to take on a challenge. This is just something different. Right now, there's a lot of activism that's involved in companies, and it's noble, but first do your product. In short, you can't please everybody. You have to pick an identity. You have to pick a lane. What are you going to be great at? What are you going to be known for? And you can't spend too much time trying to figure out a marketing angle. Just be great at what you do. Whatever it may be, if you bake bread, just make great bread. <laughs> so whatever value you're looking to add, then you need to increase that value and focus on that. You said you managed many people, right? Yes, um, thousands. Right. So what's the difference between managing and leading? Most of my clients are short on three things. Cash, time, and emotional stability. The emotional stability is the squishy part that most people in finance and law and accounting don't want to address. They don't want to talk about. But I'm a childcare worker by nature. I was a sociology grad. I spent three years working for the Children's Aid Society in Canada. I approach problem solving from a human perspective first. If I have to first go figure out what the human beings are doing, who they are, who's around me, and then I can figure out a business solution based on the people that are around me. But that's the direction I take. There's also something else that informs the difference between leading and managing. So the traditional model is a very male-oriented model. You know, iron fist, logic, let's go forward, let's do this, and you bully people. That model hopefully has gone away. It hasn't. Yeah, I know. It, I'm, I'm, I'm being wishful. It's not how I work. You have to have, again, clarity and authority because people want that. In a storm, they're looking for stability. Yes. Yes. Our minds, our soul, our heart needs something to be constant, something to be recognizable. So I start like this. Envision you're trying to pitch a tent in a storm. You can't put all four legs down you know, at the same time. Pitch one. I fix one problem then move to the next, then the next, then the next. And eventually the air starts to clear, the, the path starts to clear, then you can lead. I'm leading by managing, and then I can step back and then get a clearer vision, and the players and people and their roles start to fit into place. Mm -hmm. I see companies as living entities. I don't see them as corporations. If you look around your room right now, Anyone who's listening, look around your room. Everything you see, someone made and someone sold. Many people say, I'm not in business, Dominic. I don't know business. I'm not in the business world. I just tell them to look around the room. Mm -hmm. You're surrounded by business. Mm -hmm. If any one of those things goes away, a community goes away. When we talk about business and we talk about commerce, that's just money. We're talking about our lives and our livelihood. This is just the way we are on earth today. We happen to be here at a time where the flow of money and products 
takes up so much of our life. So for me, I like to go in and fix companies and try to impart some type of inspiration and guidance combined with technical skills to people who are struggling because I know if you're happier at work and there's clarity at work, you're going to be happier at home or the odds of you being happier at home will improve and you'll be happier in your community. What does that do? It just fosters a sense of growth and creativity. There's such a wholeness about how you approach things. And I really appreciate that. You're looking at it from a holistic perspective, whether it's business, whether it's keeping everything afloat. This is why the awkward title of Undertaker is on the cover of the book. I spent more than 20 years closing down a lot of companies and divisions of companies. And I saved many, many companies because I was looking for life. I was looking for value. I was looking for something to save. And I believed it could be saved. But I also had to liquidate and close down. And I had to represent clients in bankruptcy court. So today our papers get filled in the news. They're bankruptcy after bankruptcy. Staple, Lord and Taylor. And the word bankruptcy shows up next to these companies. We're almost normalizing it. And what I try to share with people is if you go to the bankruptcy filing, you will see thousands of companies that will not get paid. They've made something, they delivered something, they worked for it, they have people to be paid. They're not gonna get paid. So every time something goes away, it's not just a thing that goes away, it's people's jobs. And you know, I love the empathy behind that and the care and the love behind your words. So thank you so much. Dominic, as a listener of this podcast, what is a question that you would like a future leadership guest to respond to? What are you going to do today to help the world? I love that question. And I will be asking a future leader about that. Now, is there anything else, Dominic, that you would like to share with our listeners? Here's my message that I would tell everyone, whether you're in business or not in business, you're an academic, you're a teacher, spiritual leader, whomever. Embrace today and forget about the past. One of the biggest challenges we have as human beings is letting go. We spend so much of our life focused on getting and attaining. But in reality, most of our lives, we are letting go of things. We let go of our youth, our looks, our physicality, our friends, neighbors, people pass away, jobs. We're letting go. And today, when you're in a crisis, so many people are trying to hang on to money, title, position, power, the things around us. They're important to us, but you can't always hold on to them. So let it go and focus on where are we at today? The world has changed. So it's a clean slate. And I have to give this advice to many of my clients who have lost everything and they've lost social standing and their ego is bruised. And today, a lot of people are so focused on money. We're focused on a disease naturally that we're holding on tightly, hoping that it just passes by and we can resume normal. We have to embrace where we are today and say, what can we do to to make the best of what it is today. Rather than focusing on the fear, focus on I'm living, I'm breathing, 
people around me are doing well, what can I do? Rather than focusing on, oh my God, I've lost everything. It's okay. You can build again. We will build again. What's causing people a lot of frustration today is the uncertainty of when will it be over? Yeah. It's maddening to everyone, including me. So the message I share with everyone I try to give to myself, don't try to figure it all out. Put one peg in the ground at a time. <laughs> the storm is going to go on around you, whether you're here or not, whether you're angry, whether you're guilty, whether you're fearful, it's going on around us regardless. Mm -hmm. Focus on what you can control and build back from there inch by inch. Well, Dominic, that's great advice. I really encourage people to reach out to you. Hey, don't go yet. Right after every interview, I debrief with my guests and I happened to capture an amazing story that Dominic shared with me and I wanted to share with you, of course, with his permission. Here's a bonus. So I lost most of my eyesight when I was 36 in a matter of months. I lost almost all my vision in this eye and I was diagnosed with an eye disease called keratoconus, which is a weakening of the cornea. Mm -hmm. Not genetic just came out of the blue. And I went to three different ophthalmologists and they said, you're going to go completely blind. You need cornea transplants. Any at any age, that's horrible advice. At 36, living the life I was living, I needed my eyes. And I quit my job. I was a partner at a firm and my ego was just destroyed. And I said, how am I gonna live? And I said, okay, if I'm gonna go blind, I'm not gonna do it at this desk. I'm going to go see things before I go blind. So I literally threw my computer in the garbage. I left my very successful firm. Everybody thought I lost my mind. And I said, okay, what can I do? I want to learn how to make things with my hands in case I go blind. And I want to go learn things. And I started taking pictures. I couldn't see what I was taking pictures of. So I would just literally pick up a camera. I'd see light and shadow and go click, click. And then when I take it home and put it on my computer, then I could see. So the first place I went to was a monastery in Kentucky, the Abbey of Gethsemane. It was built in 1848 and run by Benedictine monks, Cistercian monks. I went to the monastery to learn how to make cheese because the Benedictine monks all around the world, each monastery is self-sufficient and each one of them makes something. So upstate New York, for example, there's a Benedictine monastery that makes great bread. So I thought, oh, I'm going to go make cheese with these guys. <laughs> when I got there, oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do this weekend? I'm going to go make cheese. <laughs> but they have a practice of silence, not a vow of silence. So you're not allowed to talk. You work. They go to mass nine times a day. They sing the Psalms. It's beautiful. So I get there, you know, here to make the cheese. And I'm like, go over there. You fold the boxes. <laughs> it was like karate kids. Who are going to let me anywhere near the cheese? Anyway, I traveled around to monasteries. I traveled to Outer Mongolia, to the desert in Chile and different places. This picture, Archangel Michael, was at Marantha Springs, Ohio. And it's a place where miracles have taken place. It was a farmer that said that God spoke to him. And he started putting up different statues, Jesus, Madonna, different saints, angels. And I drove out there and I took this picture. And so I put Archangel Michael on my computer. It was a screensaver. At that time, I didn't know I was going to go back into crisis management. This was 2004. I thought I was going to take one year off, but it ended up being three and a half years. 
So I studied shoemaking. I learned how to make shoes. I spent more time in Italy with my family, making wine, making prosciutto, making things. <laughs> you know that commercial, the most interesting the most man <laughs> in the world. <laughs> I only met one other person that I've interviewed like that, but I think you've got to meet. Oh, thank you. I say this because it really is a spiritual pursuit. It was just a belief that I'm here. And no matter how many times I told God where to go, the answer came back, no, no, you got to go. And it's faith. And even now, the business advice, Lily's So wait, wait, you didn't tell us about your oh. eyes. Yeah. Please, oh, yeah. Please, sorry. Please. <laughs> you skipped that whole part. <laughs> so one of the reasons I moved to New York is because I couldn't drive anymore. It was safe. I was very afraid to get the transplants for some reason. It just weirded me out. So I tend to be very brave, but that I was afraid of. When I got to New York in 2010, I started meeting with the Eye Institute of New York for transplants because I was tripping everywhere. I was having horrible vertigo. So I never told my staff. And I just learned to memorize things very well. I started looking at people much more intently. This is where I started learning more. And this is how I became a better leader. I couldn't see your face if you were more than three feet away from me. So I had to pay attention. I had to listen. And then every day I was surrounded by thousands and thousands of numbers on spreadsheets. So I thank God for Zoom, enlarge them and just memorize them. So for many years, no one knew what I was dealing with. Then my vision got so bad, I was tripping all the time. And I had to tell my staff that, no, I'm not drunk because I started to look very sad. So I moved out to California. I noticed that all the extra light going into my eyes took away a lot of the headache and the pain, and I could see better. That's how I ended up in California. So I carried on a few more years. By 2014, both eyes were done. I couldn't see my face in the mirror. Mm -hmm. So I started interviewing some corneas transplant specialists. And I found one in Beverly Hills, and it was an absolute miracle. Wow. I went to see him, and he said, I have this technique. I can restore, I think, about 80% of your vision without a transplant. And I promptly said, I don't believe you. You got to see it to believe it. Yeah, Doubting Thomas, where have you been for 12 years? And he said, well, okay. And I left. And I went home and drank a few martinis went to bed and the next morning I got up and said, I'm doing it. So I called him and I said, I'll do it, but you have to do it quickly before I change my mind. Two days later, I had three different surgeries. And then the following day I got about 80% of my vision back. Wow. Now I can see you. Now you can see me. That's amazing. a great story. Yes. And it's amazing all the things you learned in that space. What was the 12 years? Spend? And I bet that most of the leadership lessons were learned in those 12 years, right? Yes. The deeper yes. things. Wow. That's why I wanted to tell the story earlier. Well, I, you know, I, I've recorded okay. this, so this is going to be included <laughs> somehow, if you don't mind. No, it's okay. I didn't talk about it for many years because, again, in this very power-driven world, you know, kindness was interpreted as weakness, and any physical ailment was still viewed as a weakness. Sergio Marchioni, who was the CEO of Fiat Chrysler, very successful man, turned around the company, helped save the company, was dying of cancer, and he couldn't tell anyone because it would have affected the stock price. Nonsense. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I had close friends tell me, 
Dominic, you can't tell anyone you're blind because they won't want to hire you. Mm. I wanted to talk about things that people don't want to talk about, uncomfortable stuff. The reality is we get sick. You know, your husband's sick. And guess what happens? When you were running your own business, if you get sick, you still got to go to work. If a family member gets sick, you still got to go to work. These are part of our life. So what? I lost my vision. It didn't mean I was dead. It certainly shifted your life. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your journey, sharing your heart. Your compassion, your empathy just flows through. You are an amazing soul. Thank you for what <laughs> thank you Thank you, Lily. Have an thank amazing you. day. Thank you, Lily. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for sharing. All right, my okay. friend. We'll Let's be keep in touch, in touch okay? okay? Okay, take care. Ciao. Bye. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.